Well, good morning. You're all looking so rested. Yeah, I wanted to let you know I missed you at the 9 o'clock service. Just, uh, yeah, we had three of us there. It was awesome. And uh, so, uh, yeah, good to, good to see you here. You know, I was just so paranoid this week, I, I was going to forget to do, turn my clock. And so from Wednesday on, I had Lynn put a thing on my mirror. You know, Saturday nights, I just could not miss it because I know I'm going to do that someday. It's like, hey, where's Pastor Mike? Oh, he forgot to set his clock back. Uh, anyway, um, hey, we've got Easter coming up. We're excited about that. And as always, we'll have a special service, your extra special music and video stuff, and it'll just be a great service and looking forward to that. But I just want to give you a heads up on a couple things. Um, one is, is that I know for some churches, their philosophy of ministry is on Easter, you're just going to do a blowout service, kind of very unlike the rest of your services. And honestly, I've always felt like that's a bad way to do it because you've got all these visitors coming in, and then if they like what you're doing, they come back next way, and you don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, and if they don't like it, well, that's not, they've rejected you, and they haven't even seen you yet. And so, uh, so our goal on Easter is to do, we're going to do a, you know, kind, of a, a kind of more full service, uh, service than we normally do, but we want a lot of it to feel the same way. And so you'll, you'll, uh, uh, we'll have our worship time, we'll have our word time, uh, a good time of teaching. Uh, I'll probably be dressed similarly to this because I want them to see how I normally are. If, they, if I wear a suit and they come back, it's like, what happened to the old guy? And uh, so uh, it's like, you know, just kind of here's who we are. And so, and then also I want you to know that we're going to be doing our first Easter venue on, um, or video venue on Easter. So we're going to have a video venue. It's going to be our small auditorium. Now, it won't be a full-scale full video venue because a big part of a video venue is the ambiance and how you design the room and all that. And we'll just be in our small auditorium. But we're going to have uh, a large digital screen. We're renting uh, a high-quality uh, projector. to be larger-than-life message. We're doing live worship, and we've got a lot of food. We've got pastries and coffee and uh, oat, and cu- cupcakes, not cupcakes, uh, well, Muffins, uh, muffins, yeah, cupcakes, yeah, <laughs> woo, chocolate, and um, uh, he's alive. You should be too. <laughs> Let's go. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're gonna anyway. It's gonna be great. And so if some of you are like, man, I don't get this whole video venue thing. I'd like to just kind of check, try it out. You might want to try it out. Some of you might say, hey, I, I'm gonna <laughs> give up my seat on uh, normal because I want to have seats for guests in the main auditorium. And so uh, just be on, keep that on the radar. Now we're gonna go into our time of teaching. <laughs> Inside of your bulletin, your program is a white message note uh, called The Way, um, and I encourage you to take that out to follow along. <coughs> and uh, we're going to continue this series that we just started a couple weeks ago. So, you seem all alive today. You're awake. That uh, bodes well for me. I'm just happy about that. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, thank you for what you're doing at this church, and here you're truly creating a movement of passionate Christ followers here. And we sense it, we sense you calling us, we sense you waking us up to life, to, to calling us to a new life, and we're just excited to be with you on this journey. And so today, God, as we take the next step, as we, we go into Romans 1, we pray you to open it uh, up to us, help us to understand what it takes to follow you, and what it looks like to be part of that movement that in the ancient church was once called the way. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, let's go with me back to December. It's uh, December this year, and Lynn and I are spending a week together in Julian. Now, uh, God bless you. Let's praise the Lord. So um, in, uh, 
in Julian, uh, if you've ever been there, it's a little mountain town out in the mountains outside uh, San Diego. And, and so when my kids were growing up, for 18 years in a row, we'd spend Thanksgiving week there. It was just a great time in a cabin. And, and then the cabin burned down. And uh, so we haven't done that in years. And so it was the first time Lynn and I were back for a whole week. And this time it was just the two of us. And it was great. Every day we go out for dinner in the evening from our cabin and we come back. Then we watch a movie together, get a video and watch a movie. And the first night we decided to start with something kind of fun and lighthearted. So we got the movie Blood Diamond. <laughs> now, the, for those of you who aren't laughing, uh, Blood Diamond is a very intense movie. It's, it's very, it's gruesome, it's brutal, but it's also very true to life. It's a story uh, based on a true, true situation, 1999, in the, uh, the, the African uh, coastal uh, little uh, country of Sierra Leone. There is a uh, a uh, civil war raging, and uh, the rebels against government. And, and so in the story, uh, Blood Diamond, the, it centers on this one family. They're a fisherman's family. They live in a fisher village on the coast, very poor, thatched huts, um, but very close. And every day you'd see at the start of the movie, you see the father who's big, strong, a uh, noble-type father, uh, you know, hand-in-hand hand, or walking with his 8- or 10-year-old son, and they'd, they'd walk, he'd walk him off to the English school where he'd, he'd go to study English to one day hopefully be a doctor and have a better life. And then his dad would you know, work as a fisherman. And, and so it was just kind of just touching movement. And all of a sudden, at that point in the movie, uh, the war comes to their little village. And, uh, and so one day, the, the dad, the father, and his son, they're walking back from the seaside. And all of a sudden, the, the father hears the roar of the military trucks in the distance, and uh, all of a sudden you can see the panic in his eyes because he's heard the stories. He's heard about the, the rape, the mayhem, the murder, the killing, the, the abuse, and, and so you can see the panic, and he freaks out, and he says to his, his young son, run, and, and, and they both begin running for the village, but the truck's coming in. It's one of those military trucks, you know, that's kind of open bed, full of rebel soldiers with their big uh, uh, automatic rifles, and they're, they're, they're coming along, and they actually beat them to the town, and when they get there, the, the soldiers just start unloading their guns. On, on the population, and men, women, and children are being cut down, diving for cover. It's chaos. It's wild, and, and the dad and the son get separated, and the dad's running to his little hut, and at the back of his hut, he takes out his machete. He cuts a, a hole in the back of the hut. He breaks through. He grabs his wife, a little baby, the other child. And they're trying to get away, and in the midst of that, he's caught. He's caught by the rebel forces. He's stripped from his family, and this dad is taken to the center of the village where there's this line of uh, a line of men from his village are lined up there, adolescents and above, and they're lined up there. And at the front of the line is the rebel commander and his hatchet man, literally, at his side with his machete. And as each man stands in line, they move up to the front of the line, and there's a big log there at the front of the line. When they get there, they, with kind of a, a glee in their eye, they say, the, the, the man says, do you want short sleeves or do you want long sleeves? And what they were doing is they're cutting off the arms of these men, either at their wrist or above their elbow. It's a true story. This is what actually happened. So they couldn't join the government forces. And you're watching there as our father's getting closer, and you've already bonded with this guy. You've already seen the love for his, has for his son, what a noble man he is. And, and he's getting closer and closer to the line. You wonder what's going to happen, and your heart's starting to break for him. No, they can't cut off his arm. They can't just hold horrible. It's just it's crazy. Why would anyone do that? How evil can a person become? And as he gets up there, fortunately, the, the commander sees this big, strong dad, and he says, you know, this one's too good for cutting his arm off. Let's send him down to the river. 
So they sent him down to be a slave in the river where he would mine with other prisoners for diamonds. And when they'd find diamonds, they'd smuggle them out of the country and they'd be sold on the world market. And the money would fund back to fund the rebel cause. And that's why they're called blood diamonds. So the father is taken away from his screaming family. His little son, his 18-year-old son, meantime, is captured by the rebels and he is being drugged away screaming to the truck. He'll be taken away to the rebel camp and over the next few months he'll be beaten and he'll be disciplined and he'll be forced to kill and he'll be systematically brainwashed until he comes to the time when this, this beautiful little boy has been turned into a brutalized, brutal murderer and he will no longer remember his family and his past life. He's been transformed into one of the famous child soldiers that you read about so often in African warfare these days. Well, today, we're continuing a study that we've been in the last couple of weeks called The Way. It's a study of the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul and one of the greatest spiritual leaders, greatest spiritual thinkers, most importantly, one of the greatest Christ followers of all time. And what we're doing in this series as a church is we're, we're coming alongside of him so he can mentor us. And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be part of this ancient movement called the way? And so every week to get into it, we're starting with his teaching in the book of Romans, which is his longer, one of his longest letters and his most uh, famous letter in the New Testament. But then we're using that as a gateway, an entry point into the rest of his letters as well. And so today we come to... Uh, the second half of chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there, Romans chapter one and the second half. And, and now Paul is going to begin now in the second half to explain, to kind of write his treatise, to explain his teaching, what he calls his gospel. And uh, Paul's gospel is the ultimate good news, bad news story. Uh, the bad news is about us. The bad news is that we are the fallen race that when we chose to rebel against God so long ago, the garden, that something broke in the human heart, that something went wrong with us, and that, that ever since then we've been broken, we're fallen, there's an evil that's resident deep in the human heart, and, and there's something wrong with us, and we're helpless, and we're hopeless, and we can't change ourselves, and therefore, as we'll see later, we'll talk more, we're under the, the judgment, or what he calls the wrath of God. That's the bad news. The good news is that God loves us, and unbelievably, that he's come after us. In spite of our badness, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our fallenness, that he's come after us, and he sought us out, and that he's actually, he actually came to planet Earth to die for us, to bring us back so we could be forgiven. And so these opening four chapters of Romans, it's our first mini-series within the overall series of The Way. And the mini-series I'm calling Fallen and Forgiven. Because the first two chapters really focus on our fallenness, and the last two chapters focus on our forgiveness, okay? And so as we start today, um, the best way to think of these opening chapters is like a court case, where the Apostle Paul is going to bring his indictment against the human race. The problem is, or the, the interesting thing is, in the human race, we're not all cut from the same cloth. We're all equally fallen, but we're not all, we don't express it the same way. Like, think back to your high school, all right? Remember back to your high school, there were the wild kids, right? Okay, then the wild kids, they, they don't care about right, wrong, God, not God. They just want to do what they're going to do, could care less, just go for it, right? The wild kids. 
Okay, but then you had the good kids. And for whatever reason, maybe it's religious reasons, maybe it's just higher moral ethics, or for whatever, more compliant, for whatever reason, they, they do more the right thing in life most of the time, right? So you got the spectrum. And then in between, you have a lot of other people that are kind of good sometimes, good kids, kind of wild sometimes, right? Okay, now we're taking a little poll here this morning, all right? So I want you to go back to high school with me. How many of you would say you were, on, you were the wild kids? Kind of be brave, be, be proud, yeah. You, like, oh, man, you're not even telling the truth. I'm, <laughs> like the other services were much better at this, all right? Okay, this is church. You know, we, we live under freedom and forgiveness. Okay, let's go. How many wild children were there? Okay, that's getting better. All right. There we go. They're standing up in the back. They're waving at me. Woo! Yeah. Born in the USA, baby. That's us. All right. All right. Now, how many of you were the good kids? You were the compliant kids. I'm going to go vote. Okay, there you go. There you go. Good, good. Okay, that's a pretty good show of hands. How many of you were walking the line? You were in between. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so here's what Paul does in this, in this opening two chapters. <laughs> Some of you are still like, no, you weren't. Yes, you were. I, you were on that wild side. I can tell you. You're lying. You can't lie in church. Yes, I can. I'll be forgiven. I'll ask Jesus. All right. So, okay, so, so we, got the, we got the wild kids. We got the, so in Romans 1 and 2, first Paul is going to bring his indictment against the wild kids of the race. In, in his mind, these are the, the Gentile, non-Jewish nations that threw themselves into lives of idolatry, immorality, just broken relationships. They're the wild kids, all right? Um, and then in chapter 2, he's going to talk to the good kids of the race that for either moral reasons, uh, kind of like secular philosophical reasons, higher ethic reasons, or, or for religious reasons, which is his days best represented by the Jewish people, that he's going to talk to them. And so the, the point he's going to make is we're all fallen, but our fallenness shows up in different ways depending on the choices you make, you see? So, okay, so today we're focusing on the wild, the wild kids. And, uh, and, and so we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 32. Now, before we jump in there, there's a section on your note sheet <coughs> that's called, drum roll, please. I don't know, what's it called? The path to self-destruction. Three key words and terms. I just get going, I forget where I am, don't know where my notes are. Um, okay, so we got uh, the path to self-destruction, three key terms. So before we jump into this passage, now remember I warned you about the Apostle Paul. Remember, I told you he is hard to follow. Okay, so today we're going to get an illustration of that. So I'm going to try to break it down. This is the dummies version to chapter one of Romans, right? And so we're going to give you three key terms that he's going to use that are going to help you to understand the flow of thought, all right? So term number one. The first term is truth. What Paul's going to say in this passage is that the central crime of the human race is fallen people. The, the, make, the biggest problem in the human race is that we know what we're supposed to do. We don't want to do it, so we pretend we didn't hear God say that. <laughs> you ever have kids? <laughs> Like you tell them 18 times, I didn't know that, right? And so this is the problem of the human race, that each of us is born with a certain intuitive knowledge of God. It comes through creation. It comes through our conscience. And that we're born this way, but we don't want to do what we know we're supposed to do because we want to do our own thing. 
And therefore, we blow off the truth, we blow off God, we go our own way. And Paul's going to say that when we do this, when we reject the truth about God, there's a downward spiral that happens in our life. It leads us to false gods, kind of a false spirituality. It leads to confusion in our bodies and to a false sexuality. And it leads us to broken relationships and a broken core character. And so there's this downward spiral. We reject the truth. God, uh, then we begin this downward spiral, okay? That's the first concept. Second concept. The second, uh, the second phrase or second word is the word wrath. Now this one I need to spend a couple minutes on because uh, we're not used to using this term. We don't really talk about this, you know. He's so upset with me, boy, I really felt his wrath. I mean, we just don't really, not the way we talk. And here's the interesting thing. They didn't talk that way either. In fact, in the New Testament, when the word wrath is used, uh, it's, it's always, almost always referring to God's wrath, and it's the normal Greek word for anger. And so why didn't they just translate it that way? Well, I think the reason is they're trying to make a point that there's a difference between our anger and God's anger. That our anger tends to be petty. It tends to be selfish. It tends to be reactive, overreactive, vindictive. God's anger is his personal response to anything that violates the law of love in the universe. Anything that is evil, anything that's destructive, anything that's oppressive. He says, I hate that, All right? So, so really, his anger is the flip side of his love. Because if you truly love someone, you're going to hate whatever destroys them, aren't you? You're gonna get angry about that. Now, this is hard for us to understand as fallen people, this whole wrath concept. But I think we can get close to it. Like, let me give you a couple illustrations. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, um, I've had this a couple times, well, you, you know someone, they, they seem fairly well put together, they're a nice person, you know, you look at them, they dress okay or whatever, and team all together, and you go to their house, and then their house is a mess, right? I mean, I mean we're not talking like little out of place, I and mean, we're talking, you know, there's, I don't know, just junk everywhere, knee deep. And you're like, really? And you go to the refrigerator, and you open up, and there's like stuff growing in there, you know, and and, and there's like Tupperware with stuff coming out of it. And there's ketchup all over. And it's just disgusting. And, you, and you're looking at it. And, and inside you're going, I can't believe this. How could anyone live like this? And they come in and say, hey, bud, can you get me a beer? <laughs> it's like normal. You know, it's like, it's like they're comfortable with this whole setting, you see. And here's the situation in the human race. We're so used to our fallenness. That it's like when God comes in, he's like, oh, what do we got here? And we're like, what? What? <laughs> got the envy, little pride, arrogance, you know, little lust going on. What? Just a little lust, a little mold, no problem, you see? And so, so it's hard for us to understand his anger because we're so fallen. But on top of that, there is a way that I think we do begin to understand that even in our own lives. Let me illustrate this way. Like, have you ever come across a situation in your life where there's just like gross injustice going on or like something horribly oppressive and someone's getting away with murder? And you know that feeling you get inside of you? You just get angry. Like, this is wrong. This is not right. You know, this is, this is evil. I was thinking about this week and I, I was thinking of the movie Braveheart and I just, it's the first movie that came to my mind 
but all of our movies illustrate this because there's almost always a villain. You're always rooting for the good guy, right? So it illustrates, but let's take Braveheart. So remember the story of Braveheart? Uh, there's that the English, um, the English lords who are oppressing the Scottish peasants, and they're they're brutalizing the nation. They're horrible to them, and it's just they're raping and pillaging and oppressing. And it's just so evil. One of the most evil parts of that movie that just got me going was they they had the the king uh, uh, Edward the first. He he creates this law, this English king, that if you're a Scottish nobleman and you're going to get married that before you get married to your bride, that the English lords would have the right of first sex with the, your bride so that they could kind of dilute the Scottish influence and Scottish blood. And, you, and I remember like watching that movie and I'm like, are you kidding me? And everything within me is screaming out, this is not right. And you remember that's why William Wallace gets married secretly because he can't stand to think of his wife being violated by the English. And, and then when they, when they kill her, remember, he goes to war. And in, in that movie, you're just rooting for William Wallace, right? I mean, is anyone there rooting for the English lords? You go, boy. You rape. You plunder. We're with you. It's like, no, you, you want justice. You're angry about this. You hate this. You want William Wallace to win. And when he wins, you cheer. And when he dies at the end of the the movie, you leave, I remember walking out of that movie for the next half an hour just shaken emotionally. Part of it was the way he died, but part of it was he died. Justice was not served. And there's something in the human heart when you see something ugly, you see something vile, you see something oppressive. You watch a movie like Blood Diamond, and I'm sitting there, no, you can't do this. You can't take this eight-year-old boy and pull him away from his father and take him away and brainwash him and turn him into a murderer. You can't take a blindfold and put it over his eyes and force him to shoot a gun and then open it up and he just killed someone for the first time and he's 10 years old. How do you do that to a little boy? How do you steal a boy from his family? How do you steal a dad away? How do you rip, how do you cut people's arms off and ask them short sleeves? How evil is that? And how can we live in a world like that? And there's something in the human heart that just screams and says, this is wrong, this is evil. You pick up a paper and you read about the sex slave trade. You read about but unsuspecting women in Thailand or or Russia, and they're brought to our country, told free passage, they've got a job for you. When they come, they're made into prostitutes, and they can never get out of it because they always owe more than they can ever pay off. And you see that going on. And your heart screams out, this is wrong. I want justice done. You read, you pick up a, a, a newspaper or a news magazine about the AIDS crisis or the hunger problem in Africa, and it turns out that there are billions of dollars funneling in, but one of the biggest problems is the medicines can't get to the people because the government officials rip off their own people to get rich and steal the relief money. And doesn't your heart scream? Don't you say, why do we live in a world like this? God, why don't you do something? Don't you get angry? And it's at that moment when we get angry over evil that we are closest to understanding the wrath of God. That this is the wrath of God. It's a hatred of all that destroys, all that damages, all that defaces, all that's a violation of the law of love in his universe. It's at those moments that we still feel the image of God so long ago, the garden that's burned upon our our heart, that image of God that says, 
unjust, unrighteous things need to be punished. They need to be destroyed. And the problem is, as Paul will point out in these next two chapters, is the problem is, is the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. That we share the same human heart as those who do such things. And under different circumstances, in different places, in different times, we are all capable. There's something broken in the human race, and it's deep and it's real. And we have no ability to change ourselves no matter how much education or how good our circumstances. There's something deeply wrong. And so in chapter uh, one, he's going to unpack that. So we've talked about the truth. We've talked about the wrath. We understand that now. There's one third term. The third term is giving over. And Paul will use this three times in this passage. And here's what he's going to say. Is that God has given us free will as human beings. And when we reject the truth about God, and we give ourselves to these evil desires that are that when we do that, God could step in and stop it. He could just say, no, I'm not letting you go down that path. But he doesn't do that. He's given us a free will. And so what he says is, if you want to reject me and the truth about life, I will let you go. I will give you over to what you want to do. But I got to tell you that the path you're on is a path to self-destruction. And in letting us go, it's actually a judgment. It's actually the wrath of God is actually being released in small measure on our life. And when God says, okay, you want to reject me, and you don't want to know the truth, and you want to do your own thing, I'll let you go, but you're going to experience my wrath because that path is by nature destructive. That path of sin that looks like the path of freedom is really the path of bondage. And the longer you walk it, the more destroyed you will become. And if you continue walking it till the end of your life and reject me, then you will experience my wrath in fullness. But in the meantime, you'll receive it in part as a result of rejecting the truth. Okay? So three key concepts, and now with that, we can go into the passage itself. Let's open up to Romans 1 and verse 18. So we've got our work cut out for us, 18 through 32, equivalent of about nine chapters in a normal writer. All right, so the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Um, and catch that, normally in the New Testament, it says the wrath of God is coming at the second coming. This is an exception. He's saying this is the exception that the wrath he's talking about, we don't have to wait to the end of our lives to experience, that when we reject the truth, we experience the wrath, the, the consequences right here and right now. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now underline that line. Suppress the truth uh, by their wickedness. This is the core sin or the core crime of the human race. That we are like that child that says, but you never told me that. And as a parent, I said, are you kidding me? I told you 18 times. I pasted it on your, your wall. I put the note on your mirror. And so we know what to do, but we don't want to do it because we're fallen. 
Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them. So, so he says that every human being, doesn't matter where you're born, what time, what age, that there's certain intuitive truths about God that God has made known because God has made it plain to them. Now he tells us what he's talking about, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, in other words, what he's like, have been clearly seen. Well, what do you mean? Being understood from what has been made from the creation so that men are without excuse. So what Paul says, we don't know everything about God, but as, you, as a human being, as you just look at creation, it's so amazing, it's so beautiful, it's so brilliant, it's so complex, it's so big, it's so powerful, that just by looking at creation, it's obvious to any unbiased observer that there had to be a creator. And whoever he is, he's big, he's huge, he's powerful, he's creative, he's artist, he's, he knows what's beautiful is, he's brilliant to put this thing together. And then he cares about us, the way he's, he's wired the world. There's just, if you're unbiased, you can just look at creation and go, obviously. Now we're going to talk about this more the next time we're together in this passage, and we're going to talk about the whole thing of evolution, intelligent design, because uh, that's what Paul's really making, the intelligent design argument here. And it's what's interesting, I'll just say this today, what's interesting is you ever read some of the leading proponents who are opponents of in the intelligent design movement, what they will stay, say, and they often start their books this way, hey, if you look at the universe, we admit that it looks like it's in, that someone really bright designed this place. Of course, we know it's not true. And so what, that's what Paul is saying. You just look at the world. It's obvious there is a God. Now, a natural response if we were not fallen people a natural response would be, wow, there's got to be this amazing God who created us. He loves us. We need to search out this God. We need to find out this God. We need to thank him for all he's done. We need to, to know who he is, how we can honor him, how we can, can worship him for what he's done. That would be a natural response if you weren't fallen. But because we're fallen, our natural response is, uh-oh, it looks like someone made this place. Uh, I don't really want to know that because I want to go this way. I'm not so sure he wants me to go that way. You see, so we have a natural tendency to suppress the truth, and that's the core crime of the race. So, verse 20, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, they, not, we're not going to honor you as God, we're not going to let you run our lives, we're not going to give you thanks, but instead our thinking became futile and our foolish hearts were darkened. Now here's a core concept we're going to come back to more than once, but I want to highlight it here. This is a core concept of this passage. It's a great spiritual truth. That whenever God delivers spiritual truth to your life, you have a choice to make. You can either receive that truth and act accordingly, or you can reject that truth because you're uncomfortable with it. And if you reject the truth, the lights will go out on you spiritually. You will lose your spiritual discernment. You will lose your ability to discern truth from error. And though you think you're becoming wise, in reality, your foolish heart is becoming darkened. The lights begin to go out. And though you think you're wise, you're actually becoming a fool. Okay? And so that's exactly what he says. Um, in verse uh, 22, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. Now, here's the problem. As human beings, we are created to worship, to worship God, right? That's what we're created for. Well, what happens when we reject the true God? Well, we still have a need for spirituality in our lives, don't we? And so, but we want to do our own thing. 
So what do we do? We create alternate religious systems to try to meet our spiritual needs, but systems that allow us to do what we want to do. And now a great example of this right now, I won't go into a lot, we'll talk about it more next time. Uh, next time, I'm, my goal is to irritate as many people as possible in one message. <laughs> Just kind of get it over with. Um, but, but you see this today, for example, this week with Oprah's new thing, this online school that she's doing, uh, kind of this philosophical, spiritual approach to life. And much of our culture is going there, right? We are a, cu- we're a culture that's in a hunger of spirituality, but it's a spirituality that allows us to do whatever we want to do, you see? And that's the history of the human race. This is what happens. And so it says in verse 21, uh, or verse uh, 22, they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and so they exchanged the glory of the immortal God uh, to images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So what he says is, in the history of the human race, that in general, that once we rejected the knowledge of the true God, we still had a need for God, so we created our own gods, and historically that's been idols. Now this shows you how stupid we can be as a race. Because if you stop and think about it, what is more stupid than to take a log, carve a cool figure out of it, and bow down and thank it for all it's done for you? Doesn't that strike you as a little odd? And yet that's exactly historically what we've done as a race. Now, if you go to much of the world today, it's the same way. The idolatry is really big in the world. We don't have it a lot here, but it's really big worldwide. As you, if you've traveled, you know, far east, near east, you know, there's a lot of places, you'll see this. And, and um, the thing is, in our culture, we do it in a different way. We don't bow down to false physical gods. What we do is we create alternate religious systems that, that allow us to have a sense of spirituality and yet to do our own thing. And so we'll talk about that next time too, uh, false spirituality. There's another high one on my list. Okay, now, so uh, therefore, now there's a price to pay, right? When you reject the truth about God, the lights begin to go out. You begin to do stupid things like, like worship idols. And there's a price to pay in verse 34, uh, 24. So it says, God gave them over. Now underline that phrase, gave them over. Paul's going to say this three times in this short passage. It's very important. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, okay, key concept here, sinful desires. We tend to think of sin as a path to freedom. As fallen people, we tend to see sin as God making up rules that make no sense just so we can't have fun. That's how natural people look at the rules. Like, oh, you know, that would be so much fun to go have an affair or sleep with that person, but I'm not supposed to. God says no, because he doesn't want me to have fun. And so that's how we look at it. We, we look at sinful desires. It's really, they're sort of the path to freedom. But what, what, we, what the Bible says over and over, and we saw this in our last series on the war, or two series ago on the war, on spiritual warfare. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter? He said, he said, to guard yourself against the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. And remember what we learned is that the truth about sin is that God only says no to protect us. God's rules are always protective. They're never restrictive. And the fact of the matter is, whenever we pursue our evil desires, what happens is they destroy us. 
And, what ha- and that's what he's saying here. He says, the, the first thing that tends to go in the human race, once you've kicked off God, you've, you've rejected God, and you've bought into your false religions, the first thing that tends to follow is sexual immorality. This is the way it shows itself. And it's just true. Even in the history of the world, usually idolatry and immorality go hand in hand. Why? Because it's such a strong human desire, you create a God that will authorize it, you see, that will allow it to be. And so he says, but there's a price to pay. These desires are destructive. And so he says in verse 24, that he, to, uh, the sinful desires of your hearts, the sexual impurity, for the degrading of your bodies. There's a, degre- a degradation, a loss of our humanity that happens when we pursue evil desires. Verse 25, now they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Now, underline that phrase, exchange the truth of God for a lie. This is the second time he said that the core sin of the human race is rejecting truth, okay? So, so because of this, we worshiped, and ser- created, we worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Okay, verse 26. Now, here's the next thing we're going to see. Sin is addictive. Sin is like a drug. Then you stick it in your veins and you shoot up. You don't say, well, hey, I'm just going to get it out of my system. I've always wanted to try this. I'm just going to shoot up one time and then be done with it. Because once you shoot up sin in your arm, it creates a hunger, an addiction for more sin. Sin is addictive. It's not only destructive, it's addictive. And the more you shoot up, the more you need a high. You need a high the next time. The more drug you need the next time. Any of you have used drugs, you understand this. The the high wasn't good enough, was it? It's like this was the hit, this was amazing. Next time you have to have double, you next to have more because you need more, to get the high it takes more drug, right? It's the way it works. Well, sin is like a drug and it works exactly the same way. So when you begin to mainline some some drugs, some sin, what happens is that in order to get the same high, you need to increase it. Well, Paul uses the example of sexual immorality. He says, once the race gave themselves to sexual immorality, pretty soon just sex with uh, opposite sex wasn't good enough. It was like, no, we've done this, we're sleeping around, we've done the hooking up, uh, we're used to that, that's normal. We've done the threesomes, we've done the kinky things, we've done all this stuff. We need more. We need something else for a high. He says, so what happens? God says, okay, he gives you over and lets you go. And the next step is what we would call homosexuality or bisexuality. I need a bigger thrill. And so now normal sexuality isn't work anymore. And the race says, I need to explore something else. Can you see this happening in our culture right now? Can you see what's happened from the 60s to now? a culture that blew off the limitations, let's sleep around and so on. The rise of bisexuality and homosexuality in our, con- in our country is not an accident. It happens in all cultures. The more you pursue sexual sin, the more you need an next high. You need something new. And if we stay on this path, mark my words, we will, down the line, it will be more and more pedophilia, and down the line, it will be more bestiality. And it will happen, it always happens throughout history this way because it's the way we're wired. And God will continue to say, okay, you want to go further? You go further, but you're going to pay the price in your own lives. Okay, so, so he says here in verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Now, 
Now, uh, desire, sexual desire for the opposite sex is a normal desire. It just needs to be channeled in the, in, into a marriage relationship. But now we're going to shameful lusts. Even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. Literally, it's according to nature. Okay, so we're cr- according to the created order, God creates male and female designed to come together. Now there's this confusion of the race has gone so deep in the race that we are confused at the core of our being about our own sexuality. You see what's happened? We started being confused about God. We got confused about our sexual relations. Now we're confused at the core of our being, at at our core maleness and our femaleness. And so he says in the same way, verse 27, the, the men also abandon natural and they're created by nature, natural relations with women, and were aflamed with lust for one another. And men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Sin is self-destructive. Now let me say this. I am not saying, and there may be some of you here today that struggle with homosexual desires. And if you do, I want you to know God loves you and we love you, and we want to come alongside of you in this whole process as you're becoming like Jesus. Understand, okay. But what I'm saying is that we will talk more next time uh, that we're in this series about homosexuality. Um, it will be one of the, so we got, what, we got evolution, we got false spirituality, might as well throw in homosexuality, make it a trifecta, right? Okay, so, so next time we'll talk more about this topic. But here's what I want to say right now is what Paul is not saying that if you have homosexual desires, there's some kind of judgment on your life or you deserve that. A lot of people that struggle with this, it's not something you did. It was something that was done to you or just we don't even understand all the reasons for it today. We'll talk more about that later on, uh, next time. But, but here's what I'm saying. What Paul says is if you have these desires, you can't give in to them. Because if you do, you will pay the due penalty in your own life. It's a self-destructive process. It's not okay. It's not an alternate lifestyle. It's not all right. It's not, hey, it's the way God may be. No, it isn't. And if you buy into that and you pursue that, you will destroy your life. You'll pay the due penalty in your life. And God loves you and he's telling you that. Don't go that path. Now, there's one more level. Okay, so we reject the truth of God. It leads to false spirituality, which leads to false sexuality, which leads to confused sexuality. But the next thing he says is this also leads not just to physical confusion, but to mental confusion and to moral confusion and to character confusion. And so he says in verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Now catch that. It's the third time in this passage he said the core problem of the human race is the rejection of spiritual truth. That's where it all starts. So since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled. Now he's picturing a, he's picturing a culture that's fully gone down this path, fully rejected God. The, 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 the rejection is now playing itself out at the deepest levels of the culture. And he says, they have become filled, not just a little bit, but their cup is overflowing with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Now, again, we think of sin as the path to freedom. We often think of sin because in our lives, it's like there's something we want to do, and God says no, and so we see it as restrictive. I understand that. 
But here's the thing. God never sees sin like that. He sees sin as destruction of the human race. And here's what I want you to do. He's going to give us right now a laundry list of sins, okay? But what I want you to do is I want you to picture a relationship in your life that's important to you, okay? It could be a marriage. It could be dating. It could be a friendship. It could be the school you attend. It could be the place where you do work. It could be your extended family. It could be your government. It could be your, your country, all right? I want you to pick, but I want you to pick one relationship. I want, this is important to personalize this. And I want you to close your eyes. If you just close your eyes right now, I want you to picture that one relationship. And what I want to do is I want to unleash these sins into that relationship. And I want you to picture what happens to that relationship, okay? So close your eyes. Pick your relationship. Here we go. Here's his laundry list. They are full of envy. So, for example, if you're picturing a family, picture a family full of envy, okay? They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing ways of doing evil, disobeying their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Okay, now open your eyes. Can you picture a family like that? Can you picture a marriage like that? Can you picture a school like that? Can you picture a culture like that? Do you see what I'm saying when Paul says sin is destructive? Oh, we just have to rethink what we think of sin. We've got to rethink the whole thing. You see, God never tells us no to restrict us, always to protect us. And you say, okay, well, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. Paul says, this is how your life is going to end up. This will be a description of your life, your church, your culture, your family. This is what it will be like. It's going to be full of envy and slander and gossip and murder. And you're going to be heartless and senseless and ruthless. And what do we have? We have a picture of blood diamond, don't we? We got a picture of blood diamond. And Paul says, hey, it gets worse. <laughs> Verse 32, one last thing. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. So deep in our heart as a race, we know what we're doing is wrong. They not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. It reminds me of the high school locker room. Not only do you know, not only do you do what's wrong, you go around the room giving high fives to one or you're the man. You see? You're the man. Tell me what happened last night. You're the man. And Paul says, what is God supposed to do to a race like this that rejects the truth becomes more and more evil, that ends up like this senseless, ruthless, heartless. What is God to do? He says, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The wrath of God is going to come on a, on a race like this unless they turn, unless they change, because they're helpless and hopeless, and there is no way out, and it will just get worse, you see. And so he brings that. There are a couple quotes there on your note sheet. One from St. Augustine, early church father, famous. This is the way... The very, this is the very perfection of a man 
to find out his own perfection. The first step to getting healthy spiritually is to be honest about the truth of who we are. Okay, but look at Albert Einstein. It's easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. You see? We got a problem as a human race. Now, there's going to be a couple more chapters before the good news comes. <laughs> so hang in there. Take that Valium. Just hang with me. No. We got to even out. All right. So, so Paul has brought indictment number one against the human race. Next time, he'll, he'll bring, bring his indictment in chapter two when we get there about uh, the good kids of the human race. How does fallenness look in the good kids? Um, but today... In the time we have left, what I'd like to do is focus very quickly on a couple powerful spiritual principles for us as Christ followers that are embedded in this teaching, all right? So number one, number one is there's a huge price to pay for rejecting spiritual truth. And this just kind of runs through this whole passage. A huge price to pay for rejecting spiritual truth. In other words, God's going to come to your life and my life. He comes to us before we're Christians. He comes after we're Christians. He's going to bring us spiritual truth. And when he does, that we have a choice. We either embrace the truth about who he is and who we are and what he wants to do in our life, or we reject the truth. And if we reject the truth, what happens to us is exactly what happened to the human race. The lights go out spiritually. We, we become spiritually stupid. We become foolish. You see? And so when God is showing you a spiritual truth, it's so important how you respond. See, look at it this way. Paul says the whole problem of the human race starts because we reject the truth about God. Right? Well, guess what? Guess what the solution to the problem of the human race is? If the, if the, if the problem starts because we reject the truth, the solution comes the moment we receive the truth and we embrace the truth. So here's what's gonna happen. You're a Christ follower. You're sitting here in church. And there's gonna be some week where God begins to talk to you about something in your life, an area he wants to work on. So what do you do? Do you receive that truth, and you act on that truth, and you follow that truth? Or do you do what they do? You suppress the truth. You ignore it. You, you rationalize it. You pretend. You, do, you just reject it, you see? See, what we do on those days when God delivers spiritual truth determines our destiny. That's the principle. How we respond when God delivers spiritual truth, it determines our destiny. And Paul says it over and over in this passage. Now the good news is, is once we come to Jesus and his spirit comes into our lives, you now have a mentor and your mentor, your life coach is going to come along and he's going to show you the path to life. He's going to show you, hey, here's, here's the path to life. Here's the truth you need to know to grow to your next level in your marriage, uh, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with your kids, in your work. Here's what you need to do. Here's the truth. And he is going to mentor you by giving you the truth. Remember what Jesus said. It's the truth that what? Sets us free. And so the spirit, that's his job. So there in your note sheet, John 16, 13, Jesus said, when, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. But here's the problem. What I find is often in our lives that when the spirit comes and brings us the truth, we often will reject it. 
So the Spirit comes to your life and he shows you, he's trying to show you that you have a bitterness issue against someone you've never forgiven. The Spirit comes to your life and there's an area of habit that needs to go. The Spirit comes to your life and says, there's a fear here and we need to explore where that fear is coming from. But what often I found in Christian circles is that we are not willing to face the truth even about ourselves because we're nowhere, we kind of have in our head, we're not supposed to be certain ways. We're not supposed to have certain desires. We're not supposed to be thinking certain thoughts. And so instead of being honest that we do have those, we reject the truth the Holy Spirit's trying to bring to light. And the end result is we never get better. We never get healed. You see? Well, like think what would happen in one of our life groups here at Rocky Peak. If you're in your life group this week and someone says, I don't buy this thing of the Apostle Paul. I have real doubts about Scripture. I have some doubts about whether he's an apostle. I'm not sure I buy this Christianity thing. What would happen in our groups? Would we say, that's interesting, thanks for sharing. Why is that? And explore that with them. Or would we try to shut them down because they're thinking wrong thoughts? Would we try to say, well, you can't question it, it's God's word, you can't, that, you see? Well, what happens if someone were to bring up, man, I'm really struggling with homosexuality, what would we do? Would we embrace that and say, tell us about that, share about that, so we're on that journey, be yourself, tell us what you're really feeling, we want to help you. Let's pro or would we all go the other way when it's time for dessert? What happens in our life when our wife comes up to us and says, I think you have an anger problem. Your boss thinks you have an anger problem. Do we say, maybe the Holy Spirit's talking to me? Or do we say, that's just two people in my life that are now wrong? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? See, this is a natural, whenever there's something wrong with us, you know what our natural human tendency is? Is to suppress the truth. No, you're wrong. Let me give you 18 reasons why. I'm not angry. Do I look angry? I'm not angry. I don't have an anger problem. If I have an anger problem, you'll be the first to know. You see? Oh, and the Holy Spirit's going, no, 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 man. Hey, the way to truth, the way to healing, the way to salvation starts the day we say, I am making a radical commitment to the truth. And wherever the truth will lead me, and even if it's painful, I will embrace the truth because I know the truth will set me free. Can I tell you something? As a church, we should be the most honest and authentic group of people in the world. You know why? Because God already knows how bad we are and he still loves us. He just told us in Romans 1 that you are so messed up, you're so screwed up, and guess what? I still love you. And what we're going to learn in the book of Romans is that God never bases his love for us on our performance. And once we're clear that our relationship is not based on our performance, it opens us up to be the most honest and authentic and real people on planet Earth because we have nothing to fear from the truth. And the truth is the path to healing. And so the vision here at Rocky Peak is to create an authentic group of passionate Christ followers who are honest and true, and we can share our ups and we can share our downs, and we don't have to pretend anymore because we are under the forgiveness of Jesus. Amen?
Amen. Amen. All right. Now, since I'm out of time, and you are too, number two. I'll go quick, I promise. Keep those roasts waiting. Number two, there's a second thing, and I've, I've said this so many different ways, it won't take long, but I just want to point out quickly. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to get clear on sin. If, if we have this old mentality that sin is restrictive, God's trying to hold us down, you'll never follow God passionately because deep in your heart, you believe he's against you and not for you. And so we have to get rid of this old satanic view of sin that God's trying to restrict us. No, here's the truth about sin that's spelled out in Romans chapter one. Sin is four things, and I've chosen each word carefully. There's a little overlap. Number one, sin is destructive, number one. Number two, sin is addictive. Number three, sin is progressive. And number four, sin is pervasive. Each word important. We've talked about the whole destructive thing. So you get that. Sin is destructive. It will rip you off. It's addictive. We talked about that. The more you sin, the more you want to sin, the deeper you go into sin, like a drug. In your third, third statement, it's progressive and pervasive. In other words, sin is not just like a drug. Sin is like a disease, say cancer. And like cancer, if you don't deal with sin in your life, it doesn't stay at level one. It's progressive. It progresses to level two, level three, right? And it's also pervasive. If you have cancer in your body and you don't deal with it, does it stay in one place? No, it spreads. That's why, hey, get, let's get on it. Let's cut it out. Let's chemo it. Let's radio it. We got to get rid of it because if we don't, it spreads. Sin is exactly the same way. It's, it, see, it, it's, it, will, it will spread through your body. It will increase. A little anger you say, I'm just going to blow my top this one time. No, it makes it easier to blow your top the next time. I'm just going to do this one time. I'll get it out of my system. You don't get it out of your system. You get it into your system. You see? And so it increases. doesn't matter what the sin is. I'm just going to gossip a little bit. No, no, you gossip a little bit. It's progressive disease. You're going to go to stage two gossip. You see, it doesn't matter. You pick the sin. Sin is progressive. Okay, but it's also pervasive. It, you cannot partition your soul. You cannot say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the truth to my wife. I'm going to tell the truth to my friends. I'm going to lie to my boss. You know why? Because once you lie to your boss, you become a liar. And something changes in your core character. And now you are a different person now relating to your wife and your friends, and it's only a matter of time. If you keep lying to your boss, it's only a matter of time till you will start lying to them because sin is pervasive. It might start with rejecting God, I don't wanna do your thing, but it's gonna go to your spirituality, and it's gonna go to your sexuality, and it's gonna go to your mind, and your morals, and your relationships, see how that is? It spreads through the whole body. And so that's why the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, will write things like flee idolatry. Don't mess. He'll write things like flee immorality. Don't mess. He'll write things like get rid of bitterness, get rid of anger, get rid of, bitter, uh, of, of, of lust. He'll say get rid of it. Why? Because it's like a cancer. 
And if you leave it there and you don't get rid of it, it doesn't stay the same. It gets worse. Progressive and addictive, all right? So, so on this journey as a church with Jesus, man, may we be a people. As we are becoming a movement of God here at Rocky Peak, may we be a people that embrace the truth. Remember that dimmer switch principle I taught you about? That when we obey, God turns the light up. And we disobey, he turns the light down. And that's demonstrated here in Romans 1, isn't it? So may we be a people that embrace the truth. We are people who live in authentic community because of the forgiveness we have in Jesus. May we be a people that does radical surgery on sin because we realize it is not a restriction. It is a protection that God has put there to protect us from the evil, the damage you can do in our lives. Let's pray. God, we're... uh, we're here as your people. We want to follow you. We want to be that movement. We want to be changed. And today we've talked about two of the most important principles of spiritual life. First step is to embrace the truth. Second step, get rid of the sin that's so destructive. And God, we pray that you'd write these lessons on our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.